The law is not optional. And this is pretty ironic coming from a candidate who billed himself as the law and order candidate. Today's episode is sponsored by Decode DC, the podcast that gives you an honest look into how politics affects your life. If you're a regular listener to Best of the Left, you've probably heard the show and their great host, Jimmy Williams. He worked in politics, then he worked as a lobbyist, so he knows his stuff inside and out, and now he's taking all of that experience and he's explaining how things really work inside and outside of Washington. Decode DC is smart, surprising, and it challenges the conventional wisdom, like in their recent episode that we'll hear a clip from today, in which they break down the ethical rules that apply to the president. Check it out. I definitely do, and I think you'll love it. That's Decode DC, available on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Now, welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from Democracy Now!, Amicus from Slate, The Majority Report, The Young Turks, and Decode DC. Craig Holman, you wrote an op-ed where you said, no administration in history has been as fraught with financial conflicts of interest as the incoming Trump administration. From the president-elect on down, if steps aren't taken to manage these conflicts, the Trump administration is likely to become one of the most scandal-ridden in memory. Now, last week, we spoke to Richard Painter, who is professor of corporate law at University of Minnesota. He was the chief White House ethics lawyer for President George W. Bush. He described a key conflict of interest under President-elect Trump. Well, That's right. uh, there are uh, several uh, laws. I think the most important uh, for purposes of uh, President-elect Trump is the emoluments clause of the Constitution, uh, which is uh, one of the most uh, critical conflict of interest uh, provisions uh, for all U.S. government officials. Nobody holding a position of trust uh, with the United States government can receive payments from foreign governments, uh, whether gifts or salary, or profits. And that's what emoluments are, profits or benefits. Uh, it comes from the Latin root, uh, emolumentum, which refers to profits and benefits. Uh, and so if you have somebody who's making profits from dealing with foreign governments or companies controlled by foreign governments, that person must dispense uh, with those profits, cannot receive that money, while holding any position of trust with the United States government. That applies to every U.S. government employee, including the president, And uh, so what this means is that for Donald Trump, uh, if he's going to hold on to uh, these business uh, enterprises, which uh, present a whole range of other conflict of interest problems, uh, to satisfy the Constitution, at a bare minimum, what he's going to have to do is get the foreign government money and money from foreign government-controlled corporations uh, out of his business enterprise. And this includes foreign diplomats staying at the hotels at uh, government expense, foreign governments uh, having big parties in his hotels and canceling reservations at the Four Seasons, going over to the Trump Hotel to curry favor. All of that is unconstitutional. Also, he has bank loans uh, uh, outstanding, I believe, from the Bank of China, which is controlled by uh, the government of China, and uh, some uh, foreign government-owned banks are leasing space in, in uh, Trump office buildings. All of that has to be dealt with before January 20, or we could have uh, a violation of the Constitution. So that is Richard Painter, uh, professor of law at University of Minnesota, um, who was uh, President George W. Bush's ethics lawyer. Um, and 
So if, Craig Holman, you can talk, put this move, this midnight-hour move to, by the House Republican conference, to gut the House Ethics Office into this larger context of what Donald Trump brings to the presidency on January 20th. Donald Trump is setting the tone on this. Uh, you know, when I wrote about uh, the Trump administration is likely to be the most scandal-ridden administration in history from top down, I was talking just about the executive branch. Uh, now it looks like it's spreading into Congress as well. Donald Trump has shirked his ethics responsibilities. He has decided not to disclose his taxes. He is waffling on whether or not he's going to set up a genuine blind trust and divest himself of the conflicts of interest that Richard Painter was just talking about. Uh, he is basically shunning uh, his responsibility of complying with, with the ethics rules. And that tone has now reached into Congress. You know, part of the reason why I'm so surprised that the Republican conference in the House of Representatives repealed or have neutered the OCE is because they are going to receive a great deal of, of negative publicity on this. But clearly, they are looking at Donald Trump shirking his ethics responsibility and thinking if he can get away with it, they can get away with it. So, uh, yes, uh, we are likely to see the most scandal-ridden federal government, not just Trump administration, that we've seen, you know, the most scandal-ridden we've seen in history. Uh, this does not bode well for the next few years. Craig Holman, in our headlines at the top of the show, we talked about the Trump Organization's ongoing business and the United Arab Emirates, Indonesia and other countries continuing to raise concerns about conflicts of interest. Last month, Trump pledged his businesses would make no new deals during his time in office. However, a series of high-profile business deals are currently underway, including the construction of two luxury golf courses in, in Dubai. The first, the Trump International Golf Course there, is slated to open in February, only weeks after the inauguration. Trump is developing the golf courses with Dubai billionaire Hussein Sajwani, who attended Trump's New Year's Eve party at Mar-a-Lago Resort in Florida. Trump called Sajwani and his family the most beautiful people during his speech, his toast at the party. Can you talk about the significance of this? Or pledging to have no new deals is is meaningless. Uh, the conflicts of interest exist uh, now, and, and and they're widespread. You know, as as far as we can determine, even though Trump won't be honest and and reveal his actual you know uh, tax filings, so we can confirm where the conflicts spread. Uh, so far, we've been able to track uh, conflicts of interest from the Trump organization spanning twenty three different countries. Uh, these business enterprises exist, they're operating, and the foreign governments and foreign special interests and foreign business interests understand this. And they are doing everything they can to find ways to throw money at the feet of Donald Trump in order to buy access and, in their minds, influence over the Trump administration. We've just seen uh, two foreign governments had set up their national celebration days uh, that were scheduled at the Four Seasons Hotel, for instance. And once Trump became president, they canceled that and moved it to the Trump Hotel. 
Clearly, the whole purpose of this is to uh, make use of Trump's business organization for buying influence over President-elect Donald Trump. That's the conflict of interest. You know, every president for the last 40 years has understood the danger of those types of conflicts of interest and have placed uh, their, their wealth and their business enterprises into a blind trust or divested them entirely. Donald Trump is the first president we're seeing in recent history who's just ignoring uh, the problems that his vast empire is going to bring to, to this administration. This is going to be the most scandal-ridden administration we've seen in history. Now, many are expecting Donald Trump to give his daughter, Ivanka Trump, and her husband, Jared Kushner, official positions within the White House, a move that may violate anti-nepotism laws, or does it? Uh, it would if they're being paid. Uh, that would be a violation of the anti-nepotism law. It's rather easy to get around the anti-nepotism law by bringing them in as, say, informal consultants. You know, these are these are people who don't need to be paid. They uh, they are they are you know wealthy as is. It isn't as if they need a hundred thousand dollars salary to be a consultant to the president. So as long as they're not paid, it gets around the anti nepotism law. Uh, but it certainly bodes poorly for conflicts of interest. You know, Trump is talking about turning his empire over to his kids to run. Well, that is the same thing as the Trump family. You know, Trump was very critical of Hillary Clinton and the Clinton Foundation because foreign governments were throwing money into the Clinton Foundation, even though Hillary was not directly running that foundation. The purpose of those types of investments by foreign governments and foreign interests clearly was they understood that by supporting the Clinton family, they were going to get an inside track to Hillary Clinton. That's what Donald Trump was so critical about Hillary Clinton of. And this is exactly what Donald Trump is now going ahead and doing as president of the United States. He's keeping his family in control of his vast empire, and uh, it provides a huge window of opportunity for wealthy special interests who want to buy favors from Donald and Trump. And choosing uh, his company's top lawyer, Jason Greenblatt, to fill the newly created position of special representative for international negotiations. Greenblatt is an expert in real estate law. Uh, yes, exactly. I mean, he, he is appointing people into his administration who are going to try to finesse ways around the laws, around the restrictions, and, and try to minimize the bad publicity that's going to come with the conflicts of interest. He is not appointing people who are, who are going to be attentive to the conflicts of interest and abiding by the laws. These are people who specialize in getting around the laws. You know, I, I want to add, too, I mean, his White House counsel, Don McGahn, is uh, someone who's been a dead-set opponent against any sort of restrictions on money in politics. And he is now going to become uh, Donald Trump's key lawyer when it comes to domestic as well as international affairs. These are people who 
who are specialized in making sure that Donald Trump can evade the laws. Craig Holman, I want to thank you for being with us, public citizens, government affairs lobbyist on campaign finance and governmental ethics. He helped set up the Office of Congressional Ethics in 2008. The Emoluments Clause, and joining us to help understand what it is, is Zephyr Teachout. She's an associate professor at the Fordham School of Law, and she is the author of Corruption in America, a book that actually discusses strange arcane things like the Emoluments Clause. Uh, Zephyr ran for a congressional seat in New York's 19th district in the November election. And last week, she joined a whole bunch of anti-corruption activists to deliver petitions to Trump Tower, asking him to divest or put his assets into a blind trust. So, Zephyr, welcome to Amicus. Oh, well, I'm thrilled to be on. And I, I just want to actually clarify something, because there's, there's a lot of terms uh, floating around. Um, Trump has to divest. If he doesn't divest, he's violating the Constitution. So there's a separate, sort of a second step, which is after divesting, it should be put into a blind trust. But if you're asking yourself, you know, if you're walking along saying, is he violating the Constitution or not, the simple question is, has he liquidated his assets? If he hasn't, he's violating the Constitution. Well, maybe let's just break it down then. Uh, for I'm going to read Article 1, Section 9, Clause 8 of the Constitution so that uh, our listeners know what we're talking about. It says that no American office holder shall, quote, without the consent of the Congress, except of any present emolument office or title of any kind, whatever, from any king, prince, or foreign state, end quote. Zephyr, what is the Constitution driving at with that language, and what is an emolument? Um, well, there's different elements of it, and they, there's one part per uh, prohibits taking gifts, and the other part prohibits taking emoluments or payments. It's basically a payment. So the the simple idea is you don't want your, you know, Secretary of State on the payroll of the French government. That would be bad. <laughs> um, so uh, the emoluments prohibits taking payments. So the imagined situation at the time of the clause was elaborate gifts, you know, gifts worth a lot of money, which would then fit under the presence part of the clause, or some kind of uh, stipend from a foreign government. And one of the things, I mean, you read the clause, one of the things to notice about it is how insistent and petulant it is. It's like the First Amendment, you know, it has this language of any kind whatever. And, and, and I argue in my book that it actually represents this really fundamental American spirit that we have to fight against foreign corruption and that foreign corruption is actually one of the core downfalls of past republics. And that's what the founders saw, is that foreign governments would spare no expense, as they talked about at the Constitutional Convention, spare no expense to try to influence trade policy and war and peace, which makes perfect sense. Right before the American Revolution, there's a 
You know the phrase jack boot? Sure. Have you ever heard that? Sure. Yeah. So the phrase jack boot comes from Lord Boot, who had been a prime minister and then was a close advisor to George III. You know, I... I don't know what really happened. I just know the rumors from several hundred years ago. But the rumor is he took a lot of money from the French government and encouraged George III to make peace while others in England were fighting the opposite, um, basically taking cash in exchange for making foreign policy. Um, and that's, you know, that's what the founders were worried about. And that's what we should be worried about right now, because Trump has effectively announced he... He announced that he's not announcing, but, you know, in Trump world, that means he has told us um, that as of right now, when he becomes president, he will be taking payments from foreign interests and he will be indebted to the Chinese government. I mean, that's an outrageous position for, for an American president, let alone any American office holder to be in, who has uh, power over war and peace and trade. So help us understand, Zephyr, what the line is between taking payments, accepting monies. I mean, from what I understand, the clause is violated if he gets anything that is uh, at above market value. Is that the line that he's got to not cross here? You know, we're not even close to the line. Uh, because of Trump's business empire, he's regularly getting payments from foreign governments. Um, and both Richard Painter, the ethics lawyer for George Bush, and uh, Norm Eisen, the ethics lawyer for President Obama, have agreed on this, that the taking of payments from foreign government-owned companies uh, itself violates the emoluments clause. And there's the separate question about whether you're taking a present, which is something that's a, a greater value. So he needs to divest. And I, I think that, you know, this this sounds complicated and arcane, but this is actually really common sense. You don't want a federal office holder, particularly the president, being in a position where, um, let's say the Bank of China, uh, which he is currently indebted to, um, can change the terms in order to impact foreign policy decisions uh, regarding our military relationship with China or our trade relationship with China. And one of the things we know about Donald Trump um, is that he doesn't like to be a loser. He doesn't like to be perceived as a loser. And that creates an incredible vulnerability. Imagine his businesses aren't doing well. The tabloids are making fun of his children for uh, running his businesses into the ground. Um, that creates an incredible vulnerability and opportunity for foreign governments to say, hey, you know, we can change the terms of a repayment of a debt, affect how his businesses are doing. And in exchange get a different trade deal, um, make the Trump administration quieter on prosecuting uh, anti-dumping laws or, you know, trade violations uh, with China. Um, I mean, I've, I've mentioned China a lot. Obviously, the one of the big concerns we have now is Russia and the relationship with Russia. And there's this sort of awful um, echo of history where one of the things that motivated the emoluments clause was Benjamin Franklin got a glamorous, decorated snuff box from the King of France. And as Edmund Randolph said in the Virginia Ratifying Conventions, we were really worried that if we didn't have a clause that required Congress to approve this kind of gift, people would say, hey, Franklin's been corrupted by the King of France. And they would even look at the friendly relationship of France with some suspicion. 
Um, and that would actually undermine the American ability to deal in a friendly way with France throughout the war. Well, just a few years ago, um, and you may have seen this reported, um, Putin gave a lacquered box to Donald Trump. Obviously, that wasn't a violation of the Emoluments Clause. He wasn't a president at the time. Um, but there's this sort of awful echo of this uh, reintroduction of a corrupt gift-giving culture into the American presidency that is really, really worrying and really worrying for national security and really worrying for, for trade. And Zephyr, it sounds like you're saying that this has something in common with the other corruption you've written about so much, which is it's not just about the gifting. It's about the appearance that somebody is uh, vulnerable to the gifting, right? I mean, this is not just about the gift itself. It's about making sure that the whole sort of enterprise of governance isn't tainted by what looks to be, you know, bribes or blackmail or other transactions. Right. So, so just you know, again, it's not going to take too long before there's a, you know, quote-unquote coincidence where there is a business transaction that comes within several months of a trade transaction. And that will call into question the integrity of our trade policy, call into question the integrity of our decisions in military affairs. Um, that that itself is troubling, as is the actual corruption that's in this case. And the appearance is, is, has sort of two problems. One is the, how the appearance affects those of us here in the United States. But the other troubling thing is that now that Trump is setting it up, he's sort of setting up a machine designed to attract corrupting forces around the world. Now, we've seen bad experience with really bad experiences with other businessmen in executive positions around the world, whether you look at uh, Berlusconi or um, Thaksin in Thailand, um, businessmen in government who have enriched themselves have done very poorly by their countries. But what's unique about the United States is that our trade policy and our military policy has such a global impact that basically Trump is setting up a honeypot. Um, the Trump businesses, and it's already happening, are going to be attracting states from around the world trying to influence. Um, they may not always be successful, but trying to influence uh, trade and uh, military policy by accessing the Trump empire. And that's really troubling. So it's a very destabilizing um, situation. But there's an important other part of the clause, which I think people haven't paid enough attention to, which is that it is not just a clause that gives the president responsibility. It's a clause that gives Congress responsibility. Mm-hmm. Um, so, for instance, you know, when you're um, approving, for instance, a Supreme Court justice, the Senate has a constitutional role. Well, when it comes to emoluments, Congress has a constitutional role. So if you go back to the section that you read, you said, without the consent of Congress, Mm -hmm. the office holder can't accept these emoluments, right? Right. What that means is that Congress has to consent. Um, And what that means is our pressure here shouldn't just be on Trump, but on every Congress member to say, hey, you have an obligation. You are violating, you as a Congress member are violating the Constitution right now if you are not actively monitoring the Trump um, payments and gifts. 
And to be clear, you know, violation of the emoluments clause was used as an example of grounds for impeachment at the time of the Constitutional Convention. Um, so in the Virginia Ratifying Convention, Edmund Randolph, describing impeachment processes, used um, violation of emoluments as a reason for impeachment. So this puts a really active responsibility on members of Congress. And I don't want to see members of Congress getting away with saying, well, that's Trump's decision. You know, he's following his own lawyers. No, by not actively monitoring, investigating, either approving or disapproving payments or gifts, members of Congress are violating their own constitutional and patriotic duty. Zephyr, what's wrong with the fix that Trump has suggested after saying, "Okay, I'm going to have a press conference and announce a big fix? He scuttled that. But he has said, listen, my kids are going to run the company and there's no deals. We'll have just no deals for the next four years. Uh, I'm guessing that doesn't satisfy your reading of the emoluments clause. Well, first of all, it just doesn't make any sense. (laughs) I mean, I don't know what no deals means. It's sort of like we're back to debating what is is. Um, because a, a business that isn't making deals isn't a business. You know, you stop, uh, you know, simple terms of repayment of debt. There's constant negotiation. So it just is actually an incoherent sentence to say there's no new deals. So I mentioned earlier um, both Berlusconi and Thaxon and Thailand. Um, this is, you know, old school corruption 101 is to say, oh, it's my kids who are doing it, not me. That's what Thaxon did. That's what Berlusconi did. So um, I don't think that he's actually been clear at all about what's going to happen, except for one thing. He's keeping an ownership interest. As long as he's keeping an ownership interest, we have a problem. Zephyr, the last question I want to ask you um, uh, has to do with what looks like at least some internecine and arcane fighting between con law professors about whether this clause even applies to the president, right? I mean, there has certainly been argument offered that uh, the president is not subject to these constraints. Yep. The argument has to do with the language used in the clause and whether it applies to um, the president and to elected officials. Mm -hmm. Um, But there is both contemporary evidence um, from the Constitutional Convention and subsequent evidence that presidents and elected officials assumed it applied to them. And you're welcome to go to Northwestern online debate between myself and Seth Barrett Tillman. We were debating this question three years ago. It seemed at the time (laughs) not to be, you know, I I do want to say one thing. Sometimes things seem arcane because they're so unimportant that they're, you know, fighting over how many angels can dance on the head of a pin. But the reason this hasn't been litigated isn't because it's so unimportant. It's because it's so important. The reason this hasn't been litigated is because no president has even thought to come close to violating this foreign bribery provision. So it's not because it's irrelevant. It's because it's so fundamental, what President Van Buren called a fundamental law of the republic, that the idea of even coming close to violating it hasn't come up. So some of the questions you're asking about, where are the lines, Mm -hmm. haven't come up not because it's trivial, but because it's so basic that any self-respecting president has stayed miles away from the lines and it hasn't been litigated. So they do that by just divesting, right? That's what... Yeah, what yeah. Prior- by, by liquidating. And yes. But I want to I want to like give some examples from the 19th century just to give you a sense of how seriously this has been taken. 
So President uh, Martin Van Buren was offered horses, pearls, shawls, and a sword by the Imam of Muscat in 1840. You'd think the nice thing to do when you're offered pearls and a sword is just say, thank you. (laughs) That's what I do. (laughs) Right. But instead, he wrote a letter saying that he was forbidden from taking the presents for his own use. And he needed to check with Congress first. So he got a joint resolution of Congress authorizing him to get rid of the presents by, uh, and then give the proceeds to the Department of State and to Treasury. I mean, Van Buren took this as a fundamental, again, I used the language before, and he used the language, a fundamental law of our republic, that we don't just take money from foreign powers. Or President Tyler um, was given just two horses, and he submitted them to Congress, which then gave him the authority to sell them and give the money to Treasury. And Zephyr, you used the word impeachment. That's the only cure here, right? I mean, if the president doesn't uh, divest, there isn't some other fix. Congress either approves uh, the gifts or impeaches? Uh, Well, that's the first fix, or that's Congress's obligation. Um, uh, I will tell you that I and others are also looking at other ways to address this. Um, As you know very well, um, the answer in a legal question is uncertain until we go to the courts. Right. So, you know, here we have both a congressional obligation and a, a presidential obligation, a clause that hasn't been tested. I wouldn't say that we know right now that the, the only answer is impeachment uh, and the only answer is congressional engagement. I think that we as lawyers and citizens have an obligation, because this is such a fundamental violation, to look at other legal uh, remedies as well. Today's episode is sponsored by ZipRecruiter. If you're looking to hire a new employee, then the first step is to figure out where to post the job openings to find the best candidates, which is no big deal because I'm sure as a business owner you have plenty of time to spend researching over 100 job sites. Or, if you want to take the easy way out, there's ZipRecruiter, where you can post your job openings to all of those sites, plus social media networks like Facebook and Twitter, with a single click. And then, presumably, you'd have the rest of the day free. Qualified candidates will begin to roll in through ZipRecruiter's easy-to-use interface. No juggling emails or calls into the office. You quickly scan the candidates, rate them, and find the right person fast. If you have any issues, ZipRecruiter's friendly and human support staff is ready to help. So find out today why ZipRecruiter has been used by over 1 million businesses. And right now, my listeners can post jobs on ZipRecruiter for free by going to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. That's ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. One more time, to try it for free, go to ZipRecruiter.com slash free trial. Ari touched on this thing about the Office of Government Ethics. And Walter Schaub, the director of the Independent Office of Government Ethics, wrote a letter to Senate Democratic leaders on Saturday. Some of Trump's nominees, particularly those with a complex web of financial interests and little background in public service, about 80% of them, I would say, are left with potentially unknown or unresolved ethics issues before their hearings. According to this letter, 
that he uh, sent. This is unprecedented. I am not aware of any occasion in the four decades since the OGE, the Office of Government Ethics, was established when the Senate held a confirmation hearing before the nominee had completed the ethics review process. Let's go to um, Ryan Prabus, who was on with Chris Wallace on Sunday. Prabus is now a uh, is the chief of staff for President Electoral Trump, and uh, here he is addressing the fact that there doesn't seem to be the documentation you're supposed to submit. That's all. Ryan, so I just want to pick up on that. we got less than a minute left because the Office of Government Ethics announced this week that it has been unable to complete background ethics checks on a number of Trump's nominees uh, and said it's of great concern that these confirmation hearings are going to go forward before those background checks are, are... Now, note the way that he's framing this, right? Like, they just don't have the ability to get their act together. As opposed to... Um, it's pretty early in the process as far as these things go and nobody has sent in any documentation and you're having the, all the hearings on one day, but continue nominees uh, and said it's of great concern that these confirmation hearings are going to go forward before those background checks are, are complete. Senator Schumer says you're trying to jam them through. Given the statement by the Office of Government Ethics, any thought of delaying the confirmation hearings for any of these nominees until the background checks are complete? No, I mean, they have to get they have to get moving. I mean, they have to move faster um, and they have all the information uh, these are these are people that have been highly successful in their lives. They need to move quicker. And the, and the fact is, there's no reason. I mean, it's the first week of January. They have all the details that they need. They have all the information that they need. There's no different uh, from any other uh, new administration coming in. And the American people demand it. Change was voted for and change we will get. Right. Thank you. Oh, thank you. Uh, they're, they're so successful that you don't have to worry about ethics. We all got time for that. They've been out too much making stupid I want to put money. a flag in something, though, for you. Or I want to flag something. They have all the information they need, right? This is a problem with the Office of Government Ethics. This isn't a problem with the nominees. But moments earlier or simultaneously or across town... And really, probably just across Sixth Avenue, or maybe in D.C., I guess. Mitch McConnell is on Face the Nation with John Dickerson. And he seems to let it slip that, well, maybe they don't have all the do documentation, but they still got to get over it. The nominees, uh, the Office of Government Ethics has asked the Senate to slow down the confirmation process. The executive director wrote, I'm not aware of any occasion in the four decades since OGE was established when the Senate held a confirmation hearing before the nominees had completed the ethics review process. Will you slow down the process? Well, we're still in the process of getting the papers in. I think at least five of the nominees have all of their papers in. Uh, you know, what this is about, John, that Democrats are really Closet. frustrated. So Rance Prabus says all the papers are in. And McConnell says some of them have all their papers in. 
They clearly don't. Let me just read the letter that the head of the government and ethic, uh, the government, the uh, Office of Government Ethics wrote. The Ethics in Government Act, Act, in other words, the law says a requirement establishes a requirement that covered nominees to present presidentially appointed Senate confirmed positions must obtain OGE office of, uh, of government ethics certification of their financial disclosure reports that this certification must be obtained prior to the hearing is evidenced by the additional requirement that the nominees must make current their financial disclosure reports as to earned income by the date of the hearing. In other words, you would not have to update the report filed prior to the hearing on income earned since you filed the report if the report was able to be filed after the hearing. Three, further evidence is found in the requirement that the OGE director shall forward a copy of this report of each nominee to the congressional hearing nomination. Four, this timing is significant because the need for OGE certification prior to the hearing creates the leverage necessary to compel nominees to disclose their assets fully and resolve all conflicts of interest. So the law is pretty clear here. But here's Mitch McConnell talking BS. That they lost the election. I was in Senator Schumer's position eight years ago. I know how it feels when you're coming into a new situation that the other guys won the election. What did we do? We confirmed seven cabinet appointments the day President Obama was sworn in. We didn't like most of them either, <laughs> but he won the election. So all of these little procedural complaints are related to their frustration at having not only lost the White House, but having lost the Senate. I understand that, but we need to sort of grow up here and get past that. We need to have the president's national security team in place on day one, and papers are still coming in. And so I'm optimistic that we'll be able to get up to seven nominees on day one, just like we did eight years ago. Should it be a rule that the papers come in and then you have the hearing? Well, on Hillary Clinton, for example, we had a hearing before her FBI report was completed. Um, the vote on the floor, and we want to have all the records in that all the uh, papers completed before they're actually confirmed on the Senate floor. So nothing slowing down. I'm nothing sorry. slowing down in terms of the no. I don't think here. so. I mean, we, we want to treat. They should want to treat uh, President-elect Trump just like we treated President-elect Obama. Wouldn't their response be, there's a qualitative difference between the Obama nominees and the Trump nominees? You've got people here who have these big uh, private industry successes, but also a lot of complexity. Well, I could have made that same argument eight years ago. But were they as complex? <laughs> well, then? they were wildly liberal people. That well, that's ideology, though. Yeah, but what's the difference? I mean, <laughs> well, okay, let's let's start um, last uh, and work our way back. The difference is is that the issue isn't the ideology of these people. The issue is is that um, you have billionaires with huge potential for conflict of interest, and the Office of Government Ethics can't do their job.
and to cite that on January 20th, we confirmed uh, seven of Obama's nominees. Well, we still have a couple of weeks before the hearing. But since Mitch McConnell's in such a um, sentimental mood about when he was on the other side, let's read a uh, a piece from Mitch McConnell when he writes in 2009 the Senate has the constitutional duty to provide its advice and consent on presidential nominations a duty which we take seriously therefore prior to considering any time agreements on the floor on any nominee we expect the following standards will be met. FBI background check is complete, submitted to the committee in time for review and a prior to a hearing being noticed to the office of government ethics letter is complete and submitted to the committee in time for review and prior to a committee hearing financial disclosure statements tax returns for applicable committees are complete and submitted to the committee for review prior to a hearing being noticed noticed not even held just even scheduled all committee questionnaires are complete and have been returned to the committee unbelievable not really unbelievable yeah. but actually deeply believable but, but unexpected if i've got this letter Maybe John Dickerson should have that letter. You know? I don't know. So, uh, yeah, got ya. What do you think about scheduling? Oh, well, you know, we didn't like their nominees either. Ooh, okay. good point, Mr. Incoming Majority Leader. Trump is expected to name his son-in-law Jared Kushner as his senior advisor. Now, of course, there are a few issues with this considering the fact that it could potentially break federal anti-nepotism laws, but Jared Kushner is his son-in-law and also the husband of Donald Trump's daughter, Ivanka Trump, and uh, he also has some conflict of interest issues involved if he does become uh, Donald Trump's advisor. Now, in regard to the federal anti-nepotism laws, I want to read you what the law says specifically. Let's go to graphic 28. So it's in regard to any individual who may not be appointed, employed, promoted, or advanced in or to a civilian position in an agency if such appointment, employment, promotion, or advancement has been advocated by a public official serving in 
or exercising jurisdiction or control over the agency who is a relative of the individual. So what does relative mean? Well, the law specifies that as well. I think it's pretty clear for most people, but here's the wording of the law. Relative means with respect to a public official, an individual who is related to the public official as father, mother, son, daughter, brother, sister, uncle, aunt, first cousin, nephew, niece, husband, wife, father-in-law, mother-in-law, son-in-law, daughter-in-law, brother-in-law, sister-in-law, stepfather, stepmother, stepson, stepdaughter, stepbrother, stepsister, half-brother or half-sister. This is a federal law. So uh, the question is, and this is according to the lawyer who served under uh, Bush's administration and who also served for uh, John McCain as his lawyer. Uh, if Trump were to have him as the senior advisor, he would literally have to disregard the law, literally break the law. And that, again, is according to a lawyer who served under two conservative politicians. Uh, and Newt Gingrich at one point said, yeah, I guess it'd be break, it could be breaking the law, but then the president has uh, pardon power. So he could just immediately pardon himself and all of his family from breaking that law. That's right. And so Richard Painter, who worked as Bush's chief ethics lawyer, said, if the pardon power allows that, the pardon power allows the president to become a dictator. Because then you could break any law and then pardon yourself, break the law, pardon yourself. And what law can't you break under that idea? Now, I want you to understand something. I actually want Jared Kushner in the White House. Now, am I a big fan of Jared Kushner? No. Okay, Ivanka Trump? No. But among his advisors, but we didn't get our way. Our candidate didn't win. Their candidate won. So among Trump's advisors, Kushner and Ivanka are among the more moderate ones. They're not at all moderate. I'm just on that scale, right? So would I rather have Steve Bannon have Trump's ear or Jared Kushner have Trump's ear? I'd rather have Kushner. Right. But you do have to follow the law. Yeah, look, unfortunately, they both have Trump's ear. And Kushner, you know, as we learn more and more about him, is a little problematic as well. Um, his disdain for the media, I think, will lead to further um, a further lack of transparency with the administration and the media. Um, I didn't know this, but uh, he bought a media outlet that he didn't like. He hated the way that they reported, so he's like, I'm going to buy it. And so what kind of impact did he have on the reporting after he became the owner of that media outlet? I'm unsure. But Time Magazine has five um, really interesting things about Jared Kushner that I was unaware of. His father uh, is serving time in prison for- Served time Or earlier. served time, sorry, earlier uh, for- And by the way, the guy who put him in prison was Chris Christie. And that's why Chris Christie's not your vice president right now. Yeah, man, yeah. payback's a bitch. And why was he in prison uh, for tax evasion, uh, for illegal campaign donations? But it's okay because the money that they save from that tax evasion, they used to buy up the media they didn't like. <laughs> so this is how it works. Yeah, so it must be nice to be rich enough to be like, oh, that media organization has bothered me. I will now purchase it. Okay. Uh, now, having said all that, it's all a Hobson's choice. There are no good cho choices among Trump advisors. So. I'm still sticking with I'd rather have Kushner and Ivanka than the Bannons of the world or the outright unbelievable corruptions of the Rex Tillersons and the Mnuchins and all that. Uh, but <laughs> the law is not optional. And this is pretty ironic coming from a candidate who billed himself as the law and order candidate.
You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, join or start a represent.us chapter near you to fight corruption. Yes, today's episode focuses on executive and federal level corruption, and the lawyers are already hard at work filing lawsuits as we speak, but as you've probably been hearing more than ever, our activism efforts need to shift to the state level where we have a chance of making much more progress. Represent.us is doing just that. This organization is bringing together conservatives, progressives, and everyone in between to pass powerful anti-corruption laws that stop political bribery, end secret money, and fix our broken elections. To accomplish this goal, they are going around Congress to put powerful reforms on the ballot where people can vote for them directly, and they've been making progress. In November 2014, a bipartisan coalition of Represent Us members in Tallahassee, Florida, put America's first municipal anti-corruption act on the ballot, and they won. Since then, voters have passed initiatives for sweeping anti-corruption reforms in more than a dozen cities and states across America. In 2016, for the first time ever, comprehensive statewide anti-corruption legislation passed in South Dakota. Unfortunately, politicians in South Dakota are now declaring a fake state of emergency in an effort to ram through a Koch Brothers-backed bill that would gut America's first anti-corruption act. Anyone can help fight this battle in South Dakota by spreading the word about the ulterior motives of South Dakota politicians, but you can also fight corruption locally where you are by joining a represent.us chapter near you or starting one yourself. Go to represent.us today to get involved and bolster their efforts. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if fighting corruption at every level of government is important to you, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about joining or starting a represent.us chapter near you via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too. As the American writer John Steinbeck once said, quote, Power does not corrupt. Fear corrupts. Perhaps the fear of a loss of power, unquote. Let's make sure their fears are warranted. So what are we gonna do? Well, we uh, care about the uh, ethics and integrity of everyone in public service, including the President of the United States. He was elected to serve the American people uh, and not his own selfish interests. So I'm very much hoping that he will divest himself of his financial conflicts, require his cabinet members to do the same, uh, and then focus on the interests of the American people. Let's focus on 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 President-elect Trump. I mean, he is a businessman. America elected a businessman knowing that he is a businessman. The Art of the Deal, one of the best-selling books of all time per se, or at least he says so. So America is a bit familiar with who they just elected. 
And that means he's got business dealings all around the world. Now, we don't know what those are unless he tells us because we haven't seen his tax returns. But the bottom line is, are conflicts in a Trump administration going to be exceptional? Or, I mean, or do we know? How would we know? Well, the American people elected him knowing that he was a businessman, but they did not elect him to be a businessman. They elected him to become president of the United States. Uh, Here in Minnesota, uh, we elected Al Franken to the United States Senate. Uh, He is a former comedian uh, and the host of Saturday Night Live, but we do not expect him to be telling jokes on the floor of the Senate, and he does not do that. And President Trump is uh, to be president for the next four years, and that will require him to sell uh, or otherwise dispose of uh, many of his businesses in order to be conflict-free as as president. Uh, And I think that's what the American people expected. When you say conflict-free, why does he have to be conflict-free? Is there anything in the Constitution that says he has to be conflict-free? Well, with respect to foreign governments, yes. Uh, The uh, founders were very worried about foreign governments uh, trying to influence United States government officials through payoffs. And so they specifically stated in what is called the Emoluments Clause of the Constitution that nobody holding a position of trust with the United States government could accept uh, gifts, uh, salary, stipends, or emoluments, profits, from uh, foreign governments. So the foreign government-owned corporations and banks and um, foreign diplomats staying in the hotels, all of that, uh, they're going to have to clean that foreign government money out of the Trump business organization by January 20, or he's going to be a violation of the Constitution. So that's one of the many problems we have here if he holds on to the uh, these properties. We also have potential problems under the bribery and gratuity statutes that people are going to be mixing Trump business with the United States government business. And I'm hearing more and more reports about lobbyists uh, coming in and uh, or organizations and renting rooms, ballrooms in the uh, Trump Hotel for purpose of lobbying the United States government, including the White House. And that's not appropriate. Uh, and that could be that could imply a quid pro quo uh, lobbyists who come bearing gifts uh, for the president. So that's going to have to get shut down. So. What are you exactly suggesting? I mean, if, if that scenario, that that purported or potential quid pro quo is there, how does a Donald Trump as president fix that so that it doesn't happen? We well, could sell the hotel. I mean, there are buyers. It's a nice hotel. I mean, there are plenty of buyers out there for the hotel. And I think when he built it, he did not expect to become president of the United States. But uh, he is going to become president of the United States, and so he can find a buyer for the hotel. Uh, that would be the best solution. Yeah. You mentioned earlier the cabinet positions. Are, are Is there anything in the law or the Constitution that says the cabinet members have to um, dispose of assets, et cetera, et cetera? Or is that just a voluntary system? Well, the Constitution would prohibit the foreign government payments for the cabinet members, just as for every other government official, including the president. Uh, then there is a criminal conflict of interest statute uh, that um, applies to everyone in the executive branch, uh, except for it does not technically apply to the president, the vice president. Every other president, vice president has complied with it. But that criminal conflict of interest statute specifically says that it's a crime 
to participate in any government matter that has a uh, direct and predictable effect on your financial holdings. So what that means is a practical matter is disposing of the financial holdings that create conflicts of interest. So that's why you see Rex Tillerson getting rid of all of his ExxonMobil stock mm. uh, before he becomes Secretary of State. Otherwise, it would be impossible for him to deal with things like uh, negotiations on climate change or sure. Middle East hotspots and things that affect oil companies. It would be a criminal offense for him to do it unless he gets rid of the stock. Uh, so all of these guys and a lot of billionaires coming to this administration, they're going to have to sell a lot of stock in order to take these jobs. And, uh, you know, I think the president should do the same. But why then does this criminal conflict of interest, why does that not apply to the president or to the vice president? Why should they be exempt? Well, there are some constitutional uh, problems. If you enact a statute saying it's a criminal offense for someone to participate in certain government matters, uh, if that person is an elected official and the Constitution says that that person has certain powers as an elected official. So with respect to the president, the vice president, the members of Congress, and it also does not apply to them, uh, to apply the criminal statute directly uh, could have serious uh, constitutional implications. So what we've relied on all these years is the president, vice president, voluntarily avoiding any and all conflicts. So we have not for a very long time met a president or vice president with significant conflicts of interest, uh, personal financial interests that are affected by official duties. And we expect the members of Congress, for the most part, uh, to try to avoid those conflicts as well. Uh, but this is a, a, a political um, enforcement mechanism that the public uh, will be disgusted and vote them out of office if they see that uh, these elected officials are taking advantage of the fact that they're exempt from the statute. Let's talk about the difference. And can you explain to our listeners the difference between what is ethical and what is legal? Well, um, there, there are two uh, variations on the theme of what is legal, uh, first of all. One is uh, what is illegal but can't be proved. In other words, you can have quid pro quos with a wink, wink, nod, nod. It's illegal when the understanding is the campaign contribution is in return for official action. Wink, wink, nod, nod, but it can't be proven. So that's illegal, but something that's impossible usually to prosecute. And then you have the category of conduct, which is actually legal, but is, uh, uh, is unsavory, is unethical. Uh, undermines public confidence in government. Um, and I'll give you an example. Uh, uh, it is illegal for a government official to participate in official action uh, that has an impact on his or her financial assets. But as I already explained, that statute does not technically apply to the President of the United States. It also does not apply to a cabinet official who takes action that affects the financial portfolio of a parent, even though the cabinet official may soon inherit all that money, or the uh, financial portfolio of a grown child. Once again, we have a situation where something's outside the scope of the conflict of interest statute, but re still reeks to high heaven uh, and is uh, a badge of corruption in our mm -hmm. government. But you said a minute ago, you this wink, wink, nod, nod stuff. I mean, listen, members of Congress every single day go out, they do fundraisers, 
and with lobbyists. I used to be one of those lobbyists. I would write campaign checks to them or through a pack or whatever, go have lunch with them. Then I'd go sit in a committee in the House Financial Services and look right at the guy or the gal that I just wrote a check to, and I got business before that committee. I mean, that that's legal. That's completely 1,000% legal under current U.S. law. But is it the right thing to do? Now, I guess my question for you is apply that to the executive branch. If you've got lobbyists or people who have business before the U.S. government finding themselves in Trump-owned hotels or vineyards or business deals, how is Donald Trump as the president of the United States going to insulate himself from any impropriety. Put yourself back into the White House and you're his ethics counsel. What would you tell Donald Trump that he has to do, literally and specifically? Well, first, address corruption across the board, which means getting rid of our corrupt system of campaign finance. And that means putting someone on the Supreme Court who is not going to be a judicial activist and uh, throw out campaign finance reform legislation. Uh, that That is an outrage. That's one of the reasons he is president, because the voters in the Republican primary believed rightly or wrongly that all the other candidates were bought by the super PACs and the campaign contributors, and that, uh, uh, given the choice, they just soon had the billionaire who was paying for his own campaign. Uh, and uh, uh, Hillary Clinton had relationships with campaign contributors that are way too close for comfort. There is disgust across the board um, uh, from the American voters, Republican, Democrat, Independent, with our campaign finance system. That needs to be fixed, and the Supreme Court should butt out. It's none of their business, and they've been sticking their nose in there, the judicial activists on the court, and overturning campaign finance reform. So that's the first thing he needs to do. And then second... With respect to his own personal affairs, including his businesses, uh, he should make sure there is not an appearance of um, of corruption, of quid pro quo. And I think that what is really going to be required is selling the businesses and uh, uh, converting the assets to cash and putting in a blind trust. Uh, uh, he cannot be uh, trying to make money as a businessman side by side with being president of the United States. We just heard clips today from Democracy Now! talking with Craig Holman, who helped set up the Office of Congressional Ethics about the likelihood of Trump's administration being the most scandal-ridden in history. Amicus from Slate spoke with Zephyr Teachout about the emoluments clause. The Majority Report highlighted how the Republicans in Congress were helping Trump's nominees circumvent the ethics checks before their confirmations. The Young Turks explained the illegality of Ivanka Trump's husband working in the White House. Our activism for today is in support of Represent.us and their ongoing fight against corruption. And finally, we just heard Decode DC speak with George W. Bush's chief ethics lawyer, Richard Painter, about what Trump must do to resolve his conflicts of interest. You can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. 
Hey, Jay, this is Chris, my third call into the show at this point, formerly of Providence, Rhode Island, and now of Boston, Massachusetts, calling on or in response to the episode regarding um, health care, specifically women's health, but now with the recent gutting vote of the Affordable Care Act, I have something to say yet again. So this is going to be a little bit personal, but I have to admit that the Affordable Care Act saved my life twice. The first time the Affordable Care Act saved my life was when I was in one of the darkest moments in my adult life, and I had almost taken my life. Had the Affordable Care Act not kicked in when it did and allowed me the opportunity to start seeing a therapist again, my attempt at taking my life very likely would have been far more successful. The second time the Affordable Care Act saved my life was when I became sick from a bout of gastroenteritis that the doctors could never quite find the root cause of. What ended up happening is I spent two days in the hospital. That bug came through and hit my system so hard and so fast, it completely shut down my entire GI system at the ripe age of 30 years old. Now, if I wouldn't have had the Affordable Care Act benefits that I had at the time, I was in deep poverty, everything was covered, I would have hesitated in going to the hospital because a lifetime of debt slavery to me would have been worse than actually dying. And it really made a difference. And I know my story is not unique. So now I'm in a spot where I'm once again being put into a position where I may find myself needlessly suffering or finding my friends and family needlessly suffering or dying. And I'm fit to be tied. There's an old adage. I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it has become quite the cliche. There is nothing more worth being afraid of than being faced up against someone who has been put in a position where they feel that they have nothing left to lose. And with bread and circus waning, food becoming less and less accessible, water drying up everywhere, when people see the people that they care about suffer and they feel like they have nothing left to lose, then action takes hold. What I'm hoping, Jay, is that we can take the action to pursue the people who are causing needless misery for the sake of greed and personal gain. And we can come after their jobs. We can destroy their rhetoric. But if anything, in the last 10 years that I've been as politically aware as I am, I think that time is running very, very short. I don't know if we'll ever get to a point where we'll be able to route these disgusting cretins from where they sit or if we're gonna end up in a position where we're not gonna be so much coming for their jobs, but we're gonna be coming for their lives, just as they have shown that they have absolutely no regard for ours. Now, pardon my violent hyperbolic speech here. I'm having a hard time not breaking down during this call. And quite frankly, I don't know what to do other than making phone calls, ignoring useless online petitions, and trying to share my story. I do plan on sharing this story in far greater detail to local or national news outlets to the best of my ability, but with what little time and energy that I have right now, I figured this would be a great place to start. I've been listening to Best of the Left for quite a few years now, Jay. Haven't quite had enough liquid income to contribute, but I promise you that I will as soon as that I can. And please, keep up the good fight, and thank you for the work that you do. Cheers, mate. Hey Jay, this is Jack from Atlanta. You asked about um, what people are doing to cope with Trump uh, post-election. 
one thing I've done is joined the Democratic Socialists of America, uh, which I did in September. And if you're a you know fairly low income like myself, you can you can pay twenty seven dollars for a year membership, so it's uh, excellent value. I've only been to a few things because I work a lot and I have a family, so it's kind of hard. But I mean, I went to a Jackman reading group on Saturday, and that was just really awesome to, be able to talk about issues with uh, like minded folks because I don't really get out as much and see my actual friends. Another thing I've been doing is actually listening to Street Fight Radio and Chappet's Trap House, which are two, uh, I guess, leftist comedy podcasts. And that has really helped me to kind of laugh about stuff and how ridiculous it is, because as much as I love your show and all the other kind of lefty podcasts I listen to, oftentimes, you know, it's, it's, it's talking about really serious stuff and you need just to laugh it, laugh about it and, uh, you know, listen to a sympathetic ear. So yeah, Chappet's Trap House and Street Fight Radio, I really recommend. Check those out. Um, that's about it. Thanks very much. Uh, keep, up, keep up the good work. Hi, uh, my name is uh, Mike calling from Albany. So I have actually just a couple things. First thing uh, to touch on, I just wanted to talk about explaining something in a different way, kind of hearkening back to your little project in the end of last year. And this, for me, is, is uh, important is the delineating between socialism and communism. A lot of people just think that uh, a lot of conservatives, you know, oh, Bernie Sanders is a communist. I mean, he's even gone as far as to say Barack Obama is a communist, which is ridiculous. And the easiest kind of short little blurb I can give about that is communism is the control of uh, an economic system or wealth by an authoritarian government. Whereas socialism is the control of an economy or economic system by the people through a democratic government. So that's kind of just one way that I've actually been able to break through and maybe not change anyone's mind about socialism, but uh, kind of pull it out of the dark rank space in their mind where they kind of associate it with your standard communist dictatorships. My second point is, uh, as uh, and I'm half African American, half white, and uh, one of the topics of your last episode was allyship, uh, how someone can be an ally, and uh, was a point brought up by a good Muslim, bad Muslim. That I mean, I myself, I'm not a Muslim American. I'm, I'm would consider myself an atheist, but uh, I think part of our problem as progressives right now is we fall into this trap of tribalism. We fall into this trap of you can't possibly understand my struggle because you're not me. Um, you know, you, you kind of run into these, you can find these places on social media where, where, where different objectified groups will kind of go at each other based on the fact that, oh, well, you know, you don't understand because you're cis or, you know, when all in actuality, we all kind of you know, get wrapped up in this tribalistic view of our own issues, even on a, in a progressive standpoint. And I understand that a lot of Americans feel threatened. They feel like, uh, I think she put it as, uh, they put, feel like victims and they're angry. But you got to channel that anger and uh, you got to use that anger for good. Uh, and if sometimes if that means taking it upon yourself to help someone understand, I mean, that's only going to help you. It might be annoying. I find I do it a lot. I work in carpentry, so 
So, you know, I'm, and I work with a lot of older white guys that are always asking me, you know, what's the deal with BLM? What, what are they yelling about? And you know what I mean? And if you really just sit down and, and take a, you know, an opportunity to talk to them as if, I mean, it's going to sound a little belittling, but almost as if they're your student, you know what I mean? And you're given an opportunity to teach, you might be angry, but that anger can be used in, in, a, in a productive way. And, you know, you're going to fight resistance and people are going to tell you that you're not valid in your conviction. But, you know, that's, that's kind of a, a, fall, a shortfall on their part. And I know it's a little different when you're talking with people that want to help versus people that don't agree with you at all. But I think that if we take an opportunity to channel our anger and to teach, even if we feel like we shouldn't have to, that, it, you know, ultimately it'll just further the cause. Uh, thanks for all your work, Jay. Just like all your other listeners, I really appreciate it. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment, question, or explanation of something so we can all understand it better, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Today, a quick response to Mike from Albany. I thought he had a lot of interesting things to say. If you would like a more in-depth look at this conversation that, that he is uh, sort of alluding to, I highly recommend the January 6th episode of the podcast called Our National Conversation About Conversations About Race. The episode is titled, Will You Be My Black Friend? And then they do a what they call a B-side episode where they take the responses from their audience and play some responses and discuss those responses uh, directly following the episode. So there's the Will You Be My Black Friend episode and the B-side of the same name. And they have a long, thoughtful, nuanced, interesting conversation among a group of people of color and one white dude discussing exactly what Mike is talking about. The what should people of color say? What conversations should they be willing to have? Should they be willing to teach white people about oppression? Or is it not their job? Uh, is it white people's job to educate themselves? Or do we really want white people talking about racism by themselves? And all of this started on this show when I, I played just a little clip of a woman of color saying to her podcast audience, I don't want you to be asking me questions about my oppression right now. And so to be clear, my opinion on this is more nuanced than just that one clip I played. But my overall opinion is that I am not part of this discussion. I am not an arbiter of who is right in this discussion by any stretch. My job is to explain shit to white people for a variety of reasons. First of all, the majority of my audience is white. Again, for a variety of reasons. Secondly, I'm white. So if I'm going to focus my energy anywhere, it's going to be to explain something to my own people and try to get them to understand to a somewhat better degree, to, to any degree I am able to help understand people of color. Or religious minorities, or anyone who's being oppressed. Uh, I, I, you know, it is my job to listen to an unbelievable amount of commentary about these things. So I'm, I'm not an expert by any stretch. I'm just 
ahead of the curve of the average white dude. So the two sides of this argument break down something like this. You know, there are people of color who say, hey, who else is going to do this? We have to teach white people to stop being racist. They don't have the the knowledge, the education, the motivation, or the incentive to stop being racist. They're the ones benefiting from this system the most. So we have to talk to them. And on the other side, people are like, man, I don't have the energy to teach people to not oppress me because I could spend all day, every day doing that and hardly make a dent. So my take is that, hey, if there's a person of color out there who wants to set up their psychiatry booth like Lucy from the Peanuts, racial oppression explained, five cents, well, then more power to you. You're doing a great service. But for all of those who don't want to moonlight as an anti-oppression counselor for white people, then it is my job to explain to white people that they are not to assume it's okay to ask just any person of color to explain their oppression to them. There are a range of perspectives on this all the way around, and it ultimately just comes down to the individual. And so I think the most important point is about expectations. You just can't have the expectation that any given person is going to be willing to have a conversation with you or even answer a question from you or even take the moment to direct you to a resource where you can find out the answer to your question. Not because you have bad intentions or because your one question is so burdensome, but because for all you know, if you're asking a a semi-prominent public person like uh, someone on Twitter or a podcast host or anything like that, for all you know, you may be the 500th person asking them a similar question that day, day after day after day. And for the recipient of questions like that, that can become uh, tiresome to say the least. So you just don't want to add to that, which is why I say do as much research as you can on your own, read as much as you can, listen as much as you can, and it doesn't mean you won't be able to ask anyone a question ever, but if you've really done your homework ahead of time, there's a good chance you won't need to. As always, keep the comments coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making one-time donations, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving glowing reviews on iTunes and Stitcher. Help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from inside the Beltway yet outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. And it's a cry and shame How we get so trained See past our own sad stories and